You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Now listen, guys, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit, I'm freaking out a little bit because we have so much to get through this morning. It doesn't look like it. You look at Haggai and you're like, this is, this is going to be my favourite Sunday ever, five-minute sermon. I'm going to be out of here by 11, right? That, I'm sorry, there's just, there's way, way too much to get through this morning. I was talking to the guys, the, the team beforehand, and, and it, I, I, when I was kind of freaking out a little bit about how much to get through this morning, I remembered uh, like two months into my time here, seven years ago, preaching through Ephesians chapter 1 and getting to like the 40-minute mark and having a couple of people stand up and say, this is ridiculous. Like, uh, and, uh, and they didn't leave because they were on the worship team, all right? So that, that's, I'm, not, I'm not joking. So it, it caused me to thank God that we have a, we're, we're building a church here who can handle a lot, um, a lot of content, and, uh, and so that encourages me. I should just stop talking. We'll get into the book of Haggai, all right? So let me just frame this, this book for us with a bit of context. Remember, context is absolutely imperative if we're going to understand uh, what the Bible's saying to us. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, we get introduced, as always, to the prophet himself. So it says, In the second year of King Darius... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, stay with me, the governor of Judah, the hardest one still coming, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. All right, so this is what I love about these books. Even though they're ancient, they're historical. These are not like ancient myths, right, where there's no historical grounding. What we do, what we get in the first verse of Haggai is a, is, a, is a very sure and certain historical grounding. So let me just paint the, the immediate historical context for you real quick. We know for sure that in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came in and swept away the people of Israel. Uh, Israel was destroyed and the people were exiled to Babylon. This is a common practice in the ancient world. You, you come in, you don't just destroy a city and kill everyone. That would be a waste of people. You take those people, the best people, the most able people, and you take them back to your country where they can do stuff for you, right? And so this is called exile. This is what happened to God's people. And in 586, all of this happened as was prophesied. We've heard it over and again from the minor prophets. This is going to happen. We've even had the detail that it's Babylon that's going to come and do it. And as I said last week, God always fulfills what he says he'll do. And so the Babylonians come through, 586 BC, destroy Jerusalem, exile the people to Babylon. Then in 539 BC, remember we're BC, so we work, we work forward in time by going down in number. So this is about 47 years later. The Persian king Cyrus leads the Persian empire into Babylon and they destroy Babylon. So Babylon was the, the big bully at school and then a new bully came along and destroyed that bully. And so now Persia is in charge of everybody. And King Cyrus says to Israel, you guys can go back to where you came from. 
You're not going to be exiled anymore. That's what those Babylonian savages did to you. We're going to let you go. And so they go back with the express purpose to rebuild the temple. That's 538 BC. So he's only, he's only, he comes through. One year later, he lets them go. This is all happening according to God's plan. Remember, he said through the prophets over and again, you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be exiled, and then you're going to be restored to Jerusalem. All of it's happening precisely according to God's sovereign will, because although Cyrus might have been the great, there is no, there's only one king. The Lord rules over all things, and he uses even these pagan powers to achieve his sovereign purposes. So that's 538 BC. They've been sent back to Jerusalem. Haggai comes on the scene 520 BC. Okay, So this is 18 years after they've come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 18 years into that project, Haggai comes on the scene to speak to the people. You might remember all of this if you were here two years ago and we preached through the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, both books that deal with this very situation, the people coming back from exile to rebuild the temple. Haggai is there 18 years into the project with the express purpose of rebuking his people for not getting on and doing what God has sent them to do, namely rebuild the temple. Haggai is there to say, uh, to try and encourage the people to reprioritize their, um, their, the way that they're using their resources in order to rebuild this temple. So we get a sense of this in verse 2 to 4 of chapter 1. Check this out. The Lord of armies says this. This is through Haggai on behalf of God. These people say, that is the people of Israel say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The time has not come for the temple to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in panelled houses while this house, this temple, lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Haggai is there in the midst of a people who had the purpose of rebuilding the temple, who rather than rebuilding God's house, have started to build their own houses. And his purpose is to say, your priorities are out of whack. You're serving yourselves rather than pouring your resources into more important things, into the rebuilding of this temple. So the book of Haggai is really a question to the people of God, a question of, of, of their priorities. His question is, what do you treasure What you're doing right now for the last 18 years is revealing something about your heart. It's really revealing something about what you really treasure. And what you treasure is a manifestation of where your heart is before the Lord. We know this because Jesus said exactly this in Matthew 6, 21. Remember what he said? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. According to Jesus and Haggai, it turns out, where our treasure is, how we use our resources is a reflection of our heart. That is, it's a reflection of our relationship with God himself. So taking the lead from Haggai and then his master, Jesus, we're going to be asking the question this morning, what what do you treasure 
And what does what you treasure say about your heart? Let me ask a really uncomfortable question, all right, just because I got you here anyway, and no one's going to get up and leave, I'm pretty sure. We'll, we'll test it, all right? This, this might test you. If, let me ask you this. If you took all of your bank statements from the last 12 months, right, we got to the end of the year, you're going to take from January through to this month, we took all of your bank statements and saw where your resources were going to, what would that picture say about what you treasure? And follow-up question, would your picture be any different from anyone else in the world? To put it another way, is the way a Christian stewards the resources that God has given him or her any different from the way anyone else uses their money? The reason I know that's an uncomfortable question is because it makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I'm not the only one. Haggai comes to his people with a prophetic voice and says, and challenges the way that they're using their resources. He says, this is out of step with who you really are as God's people. And Jesus does the very same thing. I have some quotes to throw at you, okay? Just so you know, it's not just me and Jesus and Haggai saying this. A few other people as well. Listen to this. Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar. He says, the stewardship of material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. I read that and I was like, That's, uh, that seems almost heretical to me. Like he's saying, it's not really about what you know. He narrows the focus, the laser focus on this very issue that Haggai addresses. The stewardship of material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. Can you imagine if before we let you come and be a leader, we didn't just ask you, do you know the, the Apostles' Creed? But we also said, how are you stewarding your possessions? He's saying that's the most important test case, not whether you know the creed. Right, let me finish the quote. Materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. That's, that just struck me like a thunderbolt when I read that this week. And then I cross-referenced it with what Jesus said about money, and I found, actually, this guy doesn't really go far enough. Check out Luke 12. What does Jesus say? Watch out and be on your guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That is a massive takedown of our entire culture. Just slammed it. And, and, and notice what he said. He says, watch out, be on guard. Jesus knows that our tendency is always going to be to chase the shiny things. We're like those, what are those fish barracudas, right? Chase the shiny, shiny, shiny things. Like morons. He knows that we're going to be like that. And he was saying this to people in a culture that didn't have mass marketing, advertising, internet, Instagram. 
How much more do we need to hear, watch out, be on your guard? And what's the point? Your life isn't about what you have. Materialism is the predominant worldview, philosophy, religion of the world that we live in. What is materialism? I like what Tim Keller says. This is how he says it. Materialism is an excess concern for, worry about, love of, and need for money and possessions. Say it again. Materialism, excess concern for, worry about, love of, need for money and possessions. Now, the problem with that definition, though it's good, is the first couple of words, excess. None of us see our concern for, worry about, love of, and need for as an excess. In fact, most of the people in this room will probably say, well, I'm not like that guy. I'm not a Kardashian, right? Like, I'm... And so we, it's like we do with Hitler and Mother Teresa, right? Like, well, we're not that bad. We do this all the time, which is exactly why Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard. Matthew 13, Jesus' parable of the sower, this verse in particular, smashes me. I can't believe that this is true, except that Jesus said it. When he's explaining his parable, he says that, you know, the, sown that was, the seed that was sown among the thorns, it's like the gospel that's sown among people like this. It's the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. He says people responded to the gospel and then the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth, right? Watch out, be on your guard. The deceitfulness of wealth chokes it, and they're not Christians anymore. People heard the gospel. It's not that no no one shared it with them. They received it, and the reason they're not Christians is because of money, wanting money, wanting material things. That's shocking. And he's not just talking to those people out there who are going out to buy their fifth investment property. He's talking to the people in here. I'm reading this really good book at the moment. I think it's good. It's a bit controversial. It's by Johan Hari. He's a British journalist. He wrote a book on addiction, which is quite controversial. He's written a new book on depression called Lost Connections. And and he has a whole chapter in the book about the fact that materialism, he's he's not a Christian author, but he says that materialism is a misplaced value. We've we've lost our real values where, where we get real... Um, connection with real people, family, you know, um, history, tradition, these things, and we've replaced that with materialism, and the result is rampant depression and anxiety. So this is what he says, working from some, um, some research, a whole lot of research that's been done. He says, materialistic people, remember Keller's definition, who think happiness comes from accumulating stuff and a superior status have much higher levels of depression and anxiety. The more you think life is about having stuff and superiority and showing it off, the more unhappy and the more depressed and anxious you will be. Now, he's working from objective statistics and research. 
But he's just saying what Jesus has always been telling us. Why does Jesus, when he's talking about money, link it in with his teaching on not being worried and anxious? Because this. Because this is true. Now, I bet if you got everyone in a room and said, with scientific certainty, your pursuit of materialism is going to make you unhappy and anxious instead of fulfilled and popular, they would think you're out of your mind. Why? Because that's just one message in the midst of billions of marketing advertising messages that tell them the exact opposite. They tell you, they tell me the exact opposite. I met a guy recently who actually owns the car that I always wanted to own when I was a teenager. He actually owns it. And I actually spoke to him about the car that he actually owns that I actually wanted for decades. And his response to me sort of salivating over his car was amazing. He was like, yeah, but there's this new one now. And before we judge him, haven't we all done that a thousand times? I didn't plan on saying most of this stuff. We've got so much to get through. I've got to keep going. Let me just skip ahead a little bit. I want to get, I want to get right into this issue of our stewardship. Our stewardship of material resources, yes. Our stewardship of time, our stewardship of the, the, the giftedness that God has given us. All this comes into it, but I want to sort of zero in on the money thing because that's really what it comes down to with Haggai, um, with the teaching that Jesus has, has shown us at, at, at least what we've seen this morning. And so I want to kind of zero in on that. And I've got kind of three areas that I want us to correct so that at least we don't think the wrong thing about this, this issue of of financial stewardship, all right? So, so, so three errors that are corrected by a couple of verses, I think. So let's have a look at those couple of verses, all right? In Acts 17, 24 to 25, it says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. A couple of verses that correct three big errors that I think we fall into in our understanding of the stewardship of our material resources. All right, so let me just work through those those three as quickly as I can. Error number one is this. When we equate temple and the church. Now this is specifically comes out of our study of the minor prophets because they are concerned with the temple worship and particularly Haggai, this is his big burden that, that the people rebuild the temple. But it goes beyond this. I think whenever we start talking about Christian giving in terms of um, ceremonial laws and Old Testament laws pertaining to tithing and so on, we have to understand at least this, that The church is not the temple, and the temple is not the church. Remember that for the Old Testament people of God, the temple was the very dwelling place of God among them. 
When they were exiled in Babylon, just heard about, the reason that they wrote those psalms of lamentation, the reason that they sang songs like, we, 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 as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs to be with you, right? When they were lamenting the fact that they couldn't go with the people to worship God, it's because they couldn't worship God. Without a temple, they couldn't worship God. And see why Haggai might be a little agitated that they've spent 18 years not building the temple. The temple was God's dwelling place. And so they required the temple in order to meet with God. That is not the case for us. Furthermore, the temple was the center of civic life as well as spiritual life. It was also the, the means by which they um, took care of people in terms of social welfare and so on. It was much more broad in its mission than the church is. It encompassed things that really the government is responsible for in our day and in, in the new covenant. So that's why Paul says in Athens, in chapter 17 of, of Acts, he says, the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines or temples made by hands. He wants them to be really clear about this. He wants us to be really clear, clear about this. There is a tendency for people, and it's real, I think it's just a tradition thing to, to refer to the church as God's house. Yeah, but this is not where he dwells. This is where we meet together to, to worship him. This is not the dwelling place of God. This is not a temple. Where is the temple? In the new covenant, tell me, where's the temple? In us. We are temples, right? This is the reason that we haven't built this great big ornate gold-encrusted temple with priests serving at making sacrifices like this that was old covenant in the new covenant we are those temples we don't need priests to mediate God's presence in the temple because we have a great high priest in the Lord Jesus who mediates God's presence for us so Paul says in 1 Corinthians about this very thing Chapter 3, and again in chapter 6, he says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? This has been hijacked by vegans to say you shouldn't eat meat because your body's a temple. It's not about that, right? It's about the fact that we ourselves are houses of worship, that we ourselves are called to live as living sacrifices, right? You have all of this old covenant language applied to us rather than buildings made by human hands. So what does this mean practically? I've written out some stuff here, all right, so j just so I get it right. What does this mean practically when it comes to stewardship of, of finances and particularly giving to the church? In the old covenant, people gave to the temple to bless the dwelling place of God, which was a building. In the new covenant... People give to the church to bless the dwelling place of God, which is the people. So you give to the church not to bless this building. Yes, we have maintenance costs. Yes, we've got to build a fence so kids don't get run over. Yes, holes get put in the wall and we've got to fix it, right? Some of the money you give goes into maintaining an edifice. 
But the purpose of your giving is to bless the dwelling place of God, which is the people of God. Same principle, very differently applied. In the Old Covenant, people gave to the temple to fund a temporal, spiritual, social, and political mission, right? That's what I said. It's very big and broad. It was all-encompassing. It was the center of oversight for this whole nation of God's people. In the New Covenant, people give to the church to fund a temporal gospel mission, which has eternal consequences, See the difference? Still called to give, maybe even still called to give 10%. I think that's a pretty good number, especially if you're you're new to this thing and you don't know how to give, and I think they're good training wheels, good starting point. But the purpose is not to fund a temporal, spiritual, social, and and political mission. It's It's to fund a temporal gospel mission that has eternal consequences, and that's what I'm working towards We'll get there by the end. All right, enough on error number one. Error number two, God needs my money. We fall into this error frequently because we hear that the church doesn't have any money. You've heard that just about every week that you've ever been here, and it's been true forever. Um, I could go on. You hear the church doesn't have any money, and so you kind of equate those two things. That's an equivocation. Those two things aren't the same thing. Yes, if you look at our bank account right now, it's just donuts, all right? And there's debts to pay, honest, just being honest with you. And, and we've had great giving from the congregation, so I'm not, I'm not shaking you down for more money. I'm just saying that's the reality of life. We are, we're always flying close to the wind, and at the moment, it's worse than usual, that's not the same thing as saying, well, God's really poor and he needs you to give money to him. Please don't, don't, don't make that equivocation. That is not true. Remember what Paul just said in, in Acts 17? Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Have that as your mission statement whenever you're doing anything to serve this church. Whether it's giving financially, giving of your time, giving of your talent, joining a team, coming to the prayer meeting, remember that at all times. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Is he served by human hands? Yes but it's not as though he needed anything. God lacks nothing. Why do we give then? If he doesn't need it? I've got a couple of ideas. This is not an exhaustive list. You've heard it week after week after week. We give as an expression of worship. just as legitimate as standing up and singing that song, sitting down and hearing this sermon, joining in in the sharing of the Lord's Supper, just as much legitimacy in the giving of financial means, material things, 
to the temporal gospel mission of the church, which has eternal consequences, right? It's an expression of worship. You're worshiping when you give. Second thing, can't dwell on these things. Second thing, it's an antidote to materialism. Here's the truth. Everyone's, everyone's losing me, all right? Come back, come back. Here's the truth. If you're scared by materialism, if you've listened to Jesus who says, be on your guard, you know, right? Be alert. Okay, here's, here's the only antidote to materialism. Generosity. It's the only thing. In a world where you have 10,000, and that's not an exaggeration, advertising messages coming at you constantly, the only thing that will quell that tide, the only thing that will rescue you from running after things just as much as a Kardashian, right? The only thing is generosity. And so we give as an antidote to this virus that we don't want to contract. Expression of worship, antidote to materialism. Thirdly, because we, we get to have the privilege of sharing in gospel ministry when we give. We get to have, not, not because we have to, but because we get to have the privilege of sharing in gospel ministry. Let's go back to those Macedonians. Those guys give us lots, lots of good examples when it comes to this stuff. Remember 2 Corinthians 8? We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part and I can testify that according to their own ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. The Macedonians got it. They were self-interested givers. They had nothing Extreme poverty, Paul says. They voluntarily give what they can and more than what they can. Why? They felt for the poor in Jerusalem. They believed in Paul's vision of church planning and gospel ministry and they wanted the privilege. They wanted the privilege. We give as an expression of worship. We give because it's an antidote to materialism and we give because of the privilege of sharing in gospel ministry. My first two errors, the third and final one. Take a look. My money is my money. My money is my money is a massive error that I totally understand. Why do I totally understand it? Because most of us work jobs that we would prefer not to work for the express purpose of getting money. And so it makes total sense that we're doing all this, we're slugging away so that we can have the money that is our money. It goes in my bank account. I understand it. It's just an error that needs to be corrected. So let's look again at at, at Acts 17. 
Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. I can tell he crafted that sentence so that we wouldn't, get, we wouldn't have any loopholes. Paul knows when it comes to money, there is a little lawyer that lives in our heart that is looking for the slightest loophole so that we can keep our stuff. He is not served by human hands as though he needed what? Anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Otherwise, we could say, well, he gives us life and breath, but that money is mine, dang it, right? No, he says life and breath and all things. That means not just the money you earn is given to you by God, but the very capacity you have to earn the money is given to you by God. He's got you hedged in. <laughs> that, you, that little lawyer in your heart is ticked right now. <laughs> Everything we have comes from God. I love what David says at the commissioning of the temple the first temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians, the one that's being pitifully replaced now in Haggai's day, that first temple, just an amazing wonder of engineering, like that magnificent edifice that was funded by billions, the equivalent of billions of dollars of of, of the, the people of God's money, David stands before that temple at the commissioning, and this is, this is what he prays. He prays this lengthy prayer that you would do well to read all of, but let me just pull out a little bit from 1 Chronicles 29. He says, on behalf of the people to God, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. That is a perfect picture of of how resources work in the universe. Everything comes from God. And even when we are ridiculously generous, like they were, we are only giving God back what we've got out of his hand. It's a great antidote, not just to materialism, but to arrogance and pride. Love that verse. All right, we've got to keep moving. Those three errors, hopefully now to some degree corrected, enable us to recalibrate our understanding of the stewardship of our resources in this age, in this heartbeat of the age that we're living in. And what I want to put before us now in the last couple of minutes, right, is this vision of, of stewardship. This vision of stewardship that is bigger than we need a fence. Right? It's bigger than, oh, man, we could really use some admin help at the church. That costs money. Or, you know, like so much bigger than us. A vision of stewardship which puts things firmly in perspective and by that I mean the eternal 
perspective. What you do with your dollars and cents echoes through eternity. If we didn't just hear that but actually believed it, what a revolution we would have on our hands. Right at the end of the book here, and I'm out of time, so I'm not going to read all through it for you, but if you want to, you can check out Haggai in in chapter 2, specifically verse 1 to 9, and then uh, 20 to 23. Haggai paints this picture of the temple restored, and just like all of the minor prophets that we've been through, this is our 10th minor prophet, all 10, in all of what they've said, there has been more than what meets the eye. Right? In every single one, there has been a local context they're speaking into, in Haggai's case, the, the redeposited people of God, but there is something much bigger going on. I don't even know if the prophets knew themselves what was going on. God, through them, was speaking about things far greater and more eternal than they could ever dream of. And such is the case in Haggai. As he talks about this reconstruction of the temple, he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem, then or today. He's talking about the new Jerusalem. He's talking about God's eternal, established, recreated, restored kingdom. And so really what he's calling the people of God to is not just bricks and mortar, but to be part of something bigger than themselves, something that would impact people in Caroline Springs two and a half thousand years later. My friend has this little card in his wallet. And on the card, it's, uh, it's got Matthew six nineteen. To 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And the next verse is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, these are words to live by. These are words crafted by the God who made you. He knows what you need more than all of the advertisers on earth, all of the false gods and false religions and false worldviews that will tell you that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions, that will tell you your identity is somehow marked by the shoes that you wear. The God who made you and who knows you better than any other wants you. For the good of the nations for the, the eternal state of people of every tribe and nation and tongue, and for the good of your own soul, whom he'd love to rescue from anxiety and worry and addiction. For all of these reasons, he wants you to shun those treasures on earth and to store up rather treasures in heaven.
And so when it comes to giving financially, I agree with Paul. And he said to all of the churches, here's what you need to do. You need to give in accordance to what God has put on your heart. Far be it from me to tell you how much you should give and also where you should give. Certainly make sure you don't give all of your money to us and not to other worthy and noble projects. I say, having heard, I pray, what God wants you to hear this morning and having opened your heart to receive that word from him, then please do pray and ask God to show you to show you how he wants you to be involved in his work of gospel ministry in this age and just to be really honest with you if you do that and God does speak to you it's likely going to be scary what he says to you It's likely going to be threatening. It's likely going to be unsettling. And it's likely going to be designed to destroy your false sense of security, which is residing in your bank balance or your shoes or your car or whatever it is. I think I'm pretty sure that's all God wants me to say to you. We're going to have a time to share a little bit later on. And so, I don't know, maybe God has said something to someone here Uh, to be added to what's already been said. A word of testimony about your own struggles, not not just your triumphs, but maybe your your struggles in in giving or something. There might be something here that we can have a a minute or two to share in, in, in a little bit. Can I pray for us? Yeah, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I do pray that just as the seed that was sown into good soil, that this word would take root in our hearts and that it would affect us, that it would affect change in the way that we think about things, the way that we value things, the kinds of things that we treasure, the way that we give to others. Uh, Lord, that you'd be correcting those errors in our thinking Uh, Father, that you would be focusing our hearts and minds on eternal things that have eternal significance. Please do continue to do a work in us that bears much fruit for Jesus' sake. Amen.